beginning at verse 9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Let us pray. Dear God and Father in heaven, we come before you today as a people whom you have chosen out of the world to be a holy people unto yourself, sanctified by your spirit and by your word. And our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this word that you have given to us, that we might more and more come, Lord, to be in a place of greater faithfulness, of greater love and devotion to you, and a more powerful witness in the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God has made the human mind to be naturally inquisitive. A healthy mind desires knowledge like a healthy body desires food. It's a natural appetite. And this should be encouraged with respect to knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge. I say this, or I emphasize this point because it's sometimes been said that as Christians we should be wary of education, and especially higher education, lest our faith should somehow be undermined because it's often alleged that faith and learning don't go well together. But while it is true that we should be judicious in choosing where to get our education and who we should choose to be our teachers and careful, too, about how to educate our children, it is emphatically not true that learning itself is somehow inimical to the Christian faith. It's true that many academic types profess to be wise, holding to what is falsely called knowledge, as Paul says, and are led into many errors because they don't see fit to acknowledge God in their thinking. And it's true that many of their students have been taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. But none of this should lead us to think that the pursuit of knowledge itself is somehow subversive of the Christian faith. Quite the contrary is the case. All truth is God's truth, whether in theology, philosophy, history, mathematics, science or technology or any other academic field that we might speak of. 
and all the individual truths learned in all these different fields will be in harmony with each other and in harmony with what the scriptures teach. It's impossible that it should be otherwise because God is the creator of all things. And as we investigate the world that God has made, what we learn there will harmonize with the word that he has given to us. So don't stifle your natural inquisitiveness thinking that this is somehow unspiritual. Eating gives health and life and strength to the body and knowledge does the same for the mind. So don't stifle that Uh, hunger for knowledge, but rather indulge it. Now, having said this, I should be quick to add that there are some things God has not been pleased to reveal to us and some means of pursuing knowledge that are forbidden. And we see this in our opening text. There are two main points that I want you to notice in it. The first is that the Lord forbids his people from consulting those who seek the knowledge of things that are unknowable by the ordinary means of acquiring knowledge. He forbids them from consulting diviners, fortune tellers, interpreters of omens, sorcerers, mediums, necromancers. In other words, secret or occultic knowledge and the means of obtaining that knowledge. In verse 14, Moses says, These nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, your God has not allowed you to do this. So don't listen to them, he says. But then he goes right on to say in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the idea is this, that whatever the Lord should deem needful for his people to know above and beyond what they could learn through natural human means, he would reveal to them through his prophets. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So right here at this very early stage in Israel's history, the Lord is preparing his people to expect him to raise up a line of prophets in their midst. And so we find throughout the history of Israel, as the pages of Scripture unfold, that God did just this. God raised up many prophets among the people. And we can discover in Scripture that the prophets that are mentioned there can be divided into two categories. We have the writing prophets and the non-writing prophets. Non-writing prophets include men like Elijah and Elisha, Micaiah, Nathan, and Samuel, and also women like Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist. These are prophets that appear in Scripture, but they haven't left any writings that have survived to the to our day, or maybe they didn't write their prophecies at all, but they are mentioned as prophets whom God raised up in their generation. The writing prophets include everyone uh, who wrote a book or portion of the Bible, and this would include men like Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, David, who wrote many of the Psalms, and even the writers of the New Testament. But usually when we speak of the writing prophets, we have in mind 17 specific books of the Old Testament. And these 17 books of the Old Testament can also be grouped into two categories, those referred to as the major prophets and the minor prophets. Let's look for just a moment at the books of the Old Testament. Uh, They're usually categorized or grouped into four main categories, with the last one divided into two, and you see them on the screen. The first five books of the Bible written by Moses are Genesis through Deuteronomy, and these are often referred to Uh, collectively as the law. 
or as the Jews refer to them, the Torah, which means simply the teaching. It's common in English-speaking churches to refer to these books as the law, Um, and not because all of this is legal material. There's a good amount of historical narrative there, but the primary narrative around which these books focus is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so these books together collectively are referred to frequently as the law. And then come 12 historical books. And uh, these build upon or rather extend the historical period of Israel's history from the time of Moses on until the time of uh, the return from Babylonian captivity. And these books are primarily historical narrative, hence the, the title or collective category of history. Then we have the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then we have the 17 prophetic books, which, as I say, can be divided into major and minor prophets. And you'll notice the breakdown there, the numbers of books in each category. Easy way to remember, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, right? Easy rhythmical way to remember the number of books that will help you perhaps to remember the books themselves, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Now, today we begin a new sermon series on the minor prophets, uh, a portion of the Bible which is, sadly enough, often neglected. And I say sadly because there is much in the minor prophets that is of great value to us today. I mean, obviously, they were relevant in their own day as the prophets were speaking about the contemporary issues of their day and their immediate future. But there is much in these books that is very relevant for us today. The minor prophets, as you see, include the books of Hosea through Malachi, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Now, the difference between major and minor prophets is not that the major prophets are important and the minor prophets are not. The difference has to do with the size of their books. Uh, The major prophets are called major because they're bigger books. And if you're familiar with these books, you uh, have already noticed this. Uh, They're bigger books, except for Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is rather small, but because it was written by Jeremiah, who was a major prophet, um, it's included along with the major prophets. By the way, it might interest you to know that the book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. I know you probably thought it was the book of Psalms, didn't you? But it's not. Uh, Psalms has more chapters, 150 individual Psalms, but there are more words in the book of Jeremiah. Do you know what the second longest book is? You might think Psalms because until just a minute ago, you thought it was the longest book, but Psalms is actually the third longest book. The second is Genesis. So Jeremiah, Genesis, and Psalms, the three longest books of the Bible in terms of the total number of words contained in them. So now you're very well informed if you ever play Bible trivia um, on, on that question. All right, so there are 17 prophetic books altogether, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Now, this brings up an important question, and the question is, what is a prophet? Well, a prophet, very simply, is someone through whom God speaks to his people. A prophet is someone through whom God speaks to his people. He is God's spokesman, God's mouthpiece, we might say. And the resulting message, regardless of its subject matter, is called a prophecy. All right, basic stuff here, but good things to keep in mind. A prophet is somebody through whom God speaks to his people, somebody through whom he gives new revelation, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, 
I am no prophet. I don't claim any direct inspiration for anything that I speak. I am a teacher and pastor and preacher. I take what has already been revealed and simply explain it, expound it, proclaim it. I don't claim to have any new revelation from God by direct inspiration. That's the key thing in the calling of a prophet. And that's why I emphasize that regardless of the subject matter, um, a prophecy is a, a word that has come directly from God through a prophet. Now, we tend to associate prophets and prophecies with divine messages about things to come. That is, we think of prophecy as predictive. It has a future element to it. But this isn't always the case. Sometimes it is. We know of many prophecies in the Old Testament that had a fulfillment. It was a predictive uh, word from God that has a fulfillment uh, in the future with respect to the timing, timing of the prophet and maybe even still in our future today. So some prophecies, some words that come from God through a prophet are predictive, but this isn't always the case. Sometimes it's a word of rebuke that comes from God through the prophet. Sometimes a word of comfort and consolation. Sometimes it's a word of promise. Sometimes a word of instruction or direction. Again, the key element or the key thing in prophecy is not the subject of the message, but the fact that the message has come directly from God. It's a divinely inspired message. Now, to better understand the message of the minor prophets, we should first locate them in their historical setting. If you'll look with me for a moment at the insert in your bulletin, you'll see a couple of timelines, front and back uh, of the page. One of the timelines spans a period of 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. Looks like this, if you can tell. So from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, about 2,000 years. And you can see a couple of other significant uh, people that are in the Bible. Moses, who lived about 1,500 years before Christ. David, at about 1,000 years before Christ. Uh, These are general figures, but they are pretty convenient for us because they come in 500-year increments. Abraham at 2,000, Moses at 1,500, David at 1,000. And then you can see the period of the prophets there, uh, roughly from 800 to 400 B.C., or more precisely from about 760, some extended to 780, down to 430 B.C. So 430 to 450 years or so. All the writings of the 17 prophets um, and of the 12 minor prophets in particular that we're going to be talking about lived during this period. On the other side of the page, you'll find a close-up of that period with the approximate time frame of all of the 17 prophets. Again, major and minor prophets, uh, both are included. The minor prophets are in bold type and in all caps. Um, You'll also notice that there are three prophets that are indicated in orange. Those are prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember that at a certain point in Israel's history, the tribes were divided into two kingdoms. You have the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The three prophets there in orange were prophets to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. And those in, what do you call that, purple or lavender, uh, those are prophets of the southern kingdom of Judah. On the left-hand side of the page, you'll notice the time frame, and you'll see several different ancient Near Eastern empires are also indicated. 
Uh, we have the Assyrians in red, the Babylonians in blue, and the Persians in green. The rise and fall of these ancient world empires. This was a very momentous time in Israel's history because they were right smack dab in the middle of all the action. So there's a lot going on on the geopolitical stage during the time of the prophets. And it's helpful for us as we read whatever prophet, major or minor, but as we're going through the minor prophets, it's very helpful for us to understand what's going on in the background. Um, It helps us to better understand what the prophets specifically are referring to. So Lord willing, over the course of the next several months, we're going to be looking at the minor prophets in some detail. Uh, This is a a study that I have to tell you I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And I tell you that about about every new sermon series, but I really am excited about this. Um, We're going to find that the message of the prophets is amazingly relevant for modern times. Uh, They addressed the prominent issues of their day in ways that are very instructive for us today because the issues themselves are still with us. Issues like covenant faithfulness and unfaithfulness and how God responds to to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of his people. Issues like sin and repentance, wealth and poverty, the abuse of power, injustice in high places, false religion, war, the idea of just war and unjust war, the responsibilities of leadership, family matters, and a host of other things as well will be addressed. As God's messengers, the prophets frequently functioned like prosecuting attorneys, bringing an indictment against God's people, uh, accusing them of not living up to the terms of the covenant, and therefore calling them to repentance, and also assuring them that if they render true repentance to God, God would be gracious and forgiving and restore them as a people. They would find help and mercy from God. Sins that are commonly rebuked in the prophets include idolatry, uh, forsaking the way of the Lord and worshiping foreign deities in the form of various idols. Um, Also related to this, Uh, The sin of syncretism, which is taking elements of the true religion that God has revealed and combining that with pagan practices and the worship of pagan gods. So that, yes, we worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but we also, on the side, we worship Baal, the God of the Canaanites, because after all, he's a God specifically of fertility, and we want our fields and our, our livestock to reproduce abundantly. Syncretism, it's, a, it's an ongoing, a perennial temptation of God's people to combine the true worship of God with false elements. We also find a number of other sins that are rebuked by the prophets, like pro forma religion, we might say, which is going through the motions of worshiping God um, while pursuing our own agenda throughout the rest of the week. So many times in the prophets, God will say, listen, Your hands are filled with blood or your thieves and your robbers or your adulterers. And then you come into my house and you throw me an offering and you think that I'm pacified and we're all good. And it's it's, you're going through the motions of serving me, but you're not giving me your heart. You're not giving me your devotion and your obedience that is reflected not only when you come into my sanctuary, but also throughout the rest of the week when you carry out your life and your business matters and how you treat your family and so on. We also find that they address the subject of injustice and violence and how God wishes to see justice established in the gate that is the ruling uh, council uh, of a city. 
And what I think should be of great interest to us also is the fact that the prophets don't merely address individuals, but they address the nation as a whole. In fact, it would not be too much to say that they primarily address the nation, especially as the nation is embodied in its leaders. Christians today often think only in terms of how individuals relate to God. It's me and Jesus. You know, I have my personal relationship with the Lord. And that's true so far as it goes, but there's much more to it because we don't exist as solitary individuals. We're members of families. And our families have a relationship to God. We, we are members of a church, and our church has a corporate relationship to God. We're members of a community, of a state, of a nation, and God deals with each of these uh, corporate entities as well. And so while we primarily focus on our individual relationship with God, we need to be cognizant of the fact that all of these other entities also relate to God. So we should be concerned about our relationship to him, our family's relationship to him, how our church relates to him. But frequently we overlook the fact that nations as nations, no less than individuals, have a responsibility to be godly, right? Don't buy into the lie that we must be secular as a state, that we should pay no regard to God as, uh, as a nation because somehow that's uh, unjust, uh, that, that, by the way, is a false reading of the Constitution, in my judgment. But beyond that, there are those who say on principle, and even many Christians who say that, no, it is not appropriate for a, Christ, for a nation to take a religious stance. I would suggest that that is not the best way to look at things from a number of passages of Scripture, uh, but I'll just point you to one, and that is Psalm chapter 2, where God calls upon the nations of the earth to submit to him and to his anointed. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth are saying, we don't want God to rule over us. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord beholds them with derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king, Messiah, speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. In other words, pay homage to the Son. Give reverence to the Son, God's Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this was not only the responsibility of Israel, even though it's a psalm of David um, and speaks specifically and directly to Israel, but notice that the plurals are employed when it speaks of kings. Listen, O kings, pay homage to the Son, O kings of the earth. The kings of the earth are in rebellion against the Lord. It's not just the king of Israel that is being spoken of here, but the kings of the various nations. And the prophets... Likewise, in the minor prophets as well as the major prophets, frequently announce 
uh, judgment upon the nations for doing evil, not just Israel. In fact, the message of the first book that we'll be looking at is, is Jonah, and it's entirely directed at a foreign city, the city of Nineveh, that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah is called not to preach in Jerusalem or the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, but he's called to preach in the capital of Israel's enemies, the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh. And the message that is being sent there through the mouth of Jonah is repent or God will destroy this city. And the wonder of all wonders is that Nineveh repented. <laughs> when God's people in Israel often just turned a deaf ear to the prophets, here a prophet is sent to their enemies and they listen and they repent. So God speaks to the nations as well. Uh, likewise, uh, the message of Nahum. Nahum also is a prophet of Israel, but yet has a message for the city of Nineveh and for the Assyrian Empire. The message of Obadiah concerns the people of Edom. In addition to Israel and Judah, Amos addresses Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. All of these, again, foreign people. So it's not true that the message of the prophets is only for Israel, God's covenanted people, but rather that the eternal principles of God's righteousness and justice, as well as his mercy and compassion, is a message for all nations as well. And not just in ancient times, but today also. The message of the minor prophets then is relevant to the United States in the 21st century, and we ignore this to our own peril. Now, as I say, in, as individuals, we have a responsibility to walk uprightly before the Lord, but so does our country, our state, our local government, by acknowledging the Lord and enacting just policy. Now, <clears throat> there are a few different ways in which we can work our way through the minor prophets. Um, this, by the way, being an introductory message, maybe is short on inspiration, a lot on setting the groundwork and the foundation of the study. So there's not maybe a lot that you'll take away from today's message as you think, wow, that just inspires me to serve the Lord faithfully, uh, or wow, it just really packs an emotional punch. But there are some things here that we want to deal with that... Uh, uh, I think will help set the stage for a better understanding later. And as I say, one of these is how we approach the minor prophets. Um, they are, again, 12 different books, so how do we approach them? We could do so in what's called canonical order, the canon of Scripture. All 66 books are there, and they're in a particular order. We could take it in the order in which they appear in Scripture. Or we could do it thematically, say prophecies that relate to the nations versus prophecies that relate to Israel and Judah. Or maybe we could do it in the reverse order, or we could pick out some other theme uh, by which we could address them in a particular order. But we're going to work our way through them in chronological order, which is not the same order as they appear in the Bible. Uh, so we're going to de deal with them in chronological order at least as best as we can tell that order, because there are some books where we're not entirely sure. I think that chronological order makes the most sense and will help us to get a good overview and understanding the period and also the message of each of the prophets. Now, most of what's written in the prophets is written in poetic form rather than in prose. Prose is the ordinary form of spoken or written language. Poetry is more rhythmical and imaginative and creative speech. It uses figures of speech like similes and metaphors, 
uh, more frequently uh, than does prose and is structured into verses and often uses metrical rhythms and rhymes. Rhyming isn't actually a part of Hebrew poetry as much as it is in English poetry, uh, but we can recognize various forms of speech as being poetic or prose. And usually we can tell at a glance whether a passage in the Bible is poetry or prose by how the words are laid out on a page. You can see, for instance, on this slide an example of each. Prose on the left, poetry on the right. On the left is the first page of First Kings, which is one of the 12 historical books uh, written in prose. It's historical narrative. On the left is the first page of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, written as poetry. And again, you can see the difference at a glance just by how the page is structured. As I said, poetry uses much more creative, imaginative, and colorful language than prose does, and therefore often, often carries more punch in what it's communicated. Um, one writer has said the minor prophets offer a compelling portrayal of God through vivid and dramatic metaphors. In judgment, the God of Israel is like a fierce warrior, a roaring lion, a raging whirlwind, and a consuming fire. And yet, the same prophets who employ these frightening images also assure us that in his work of salvation, the Lord is a faithful husband, a loving father, a healer who restores, and a compassionate shepherd. And this is one of the really compelling things about uh, the prophets is the, the the depth, or maybe we should say the height of their thought, but also the beauty in the way in which they express that thought, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but in beautiful language that really drives the message home, right? It's one thing for, for instance, to say, for instance, God for, will forgive your sin. If God says, I will forgive your sin, we take that bare proposition and we hold on to it as a precious promise. That's another thing when you read in the prophets where God says, I will tread your sins underfoot like a warrior treads over his enemy. You know, I will cast your sins behind my back. I will cast them into the depths of the sea. I will remove them as far as the east is from the west. The, the, this kind of poetic language drives the point home all the more, all the more powerfully. And so this is what we have to look forward to, among other things, as we read through the minor prophets, the beauty of the language as it addresses uh, the issues that God wishes to communicate to us. There is a, a power and a grandeur both in the thought and in the language of the prophets that, that can't help but to increase our admiration for the greatness of God, of God and the totality of his attributes, because we read in the in the prophets, of his justice and mercy and compassion, of his fatherly care for his people and all the various elements that make up his character. In the, minor, in the prophets, he is revealed to be sovereign over the nations, raising them up and bringing them down at his will to serve his purposes, all the while dealing with them in both justice and mercy according to his wisdom. And although the coming of the Messiah is not the most prominent theme in the minor prophets, there are occasional hints of his coming. It's in Micah, for instance, that we learn that he will be born in Bethlehem. As we read through the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and the wise men come from the east, they approach Jerusalem, and they inquire, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Where is he to be born? And the priests consult the prophetic books and they say, Bethlehem, for thus it is written in the prophet Micah, one of the minor prophets. So we learn from Micah that he's to be born in Bethlehem. And we also learn from the same passage in Micah that his goings forth have been from of old, from 
the days of eternity, which is an indication that this Messiah who is to be born in Bethlehem is not a mere man. If he has the attribute of eternity, he must also be a divine figure as well. So it's hinting at the incarnation. In Hosea, there is a hint of our Lord's brief sojourn in Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Remember, after Jesus was born, King Herod sought to have uh, the newborn king of the Jews put to death because he didn't want to have any rivals. And the angel warned Joseph in a dream, saying, take the child and his mother away to Egypt. And so they did. And after Herod died, another angel comes and brings a message, and they come back to the land of Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my son. It's in Zechariah that we learn, or we find a prophecy of the events of Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It's also in Zechariah that we learn that the Messiah would be pierced and mourned as one who mourns for an only son. And there are a number of other messianic prophecies in the minor prophets that we'll note as we go, including the fact that he would have a forerunner, a prophet like Elijah, who would prepare the way of the Lord before him in Malachi chapter 4. But even when the minor prophets are not speaking of Christ directly, we must always understand that everything in the Old Testament is preparing the way for Christ. Everything in the Old Testament stands as like road signs pointing ahead, pointing to the coming Savior, sometimes in a very direct way that is unmistakable as we read it, like the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Others in more uh, oblique ways that are more difficult. If you lived in that day, you probably wouldn't understand it as being a messianic prophecy. But after the fact, you can read into it and say, that was pointing to our Messiah. And it speaks of his suffering or it speaks of his uh, ascension or his enthronement in heaven. And so everything in the Old Testament, whether it's in the law and all of the, the ceremonies in the sanctuary with the sacrifices and the rituals of the priesthood, or whether it's in the prophets, even though the prophets themselves and the particular prophecy might not be speaking of Christ, we understand that ultimately it is with reference to the preparation of the coming of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him. God's dealings with Israel throughout history, including their calling in Abraham, the giving of the law, the establishment of the dynasty of David, God's preservation of the people of Israel in spite of all of their sins. I mean, think about this. In the ancient world, when they were conquered by the Babylonians, they went into exile and they lost national sovereignty and other nations that suffered the same fate at that time, never were restored. They never came back into existence again as a nation, but God preserved the people of Israel and they came back together in the land of Israel and were a nation once again. So God preserved the people in spite of all of their sins. And all of this was done with a view to bringing the Messiah into the world and bringing salvation to the four corners of the earth, including bringing that salvation to us right here in Pratt, Kansas, in 2018. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God and